Good morning. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. We here at First Baptist have been making our way through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. This is now our 31st sermon in this book, and today we come to the very last chapter. Now remember, the books of Samuel, First uh, and Second Samuel, were originally one book, uh, and it is a book that covers many years of Israel's history. Uh, the lives of the high priest Eli, the great prophet Samuel, the first king, Saul, uh, chronicling the nation's transition to a monarchy. The book covers a lot of different topics and subjects, but the main focus of the book is undeniably King David. And basically everything from 1 Samuel chapter 16 all the way to 2 Samuel 24, that's 40 chapters of 1 and 2 Samuel combined, uh, all of those are about the rise and reign of King David. And 2 Samuel 24 is the last of those chapters because in the next book, 1 Kings, uh, that begins with David's son, Solomon, ascending to the throne to replace his father. And so here, in this very last chapter of the books of Samuel, in this very last passage about the life and reign of King David, in this very last section of the epilogue that concludes the book, surely the author's going to end on a high note, right? Like, I think we've watched enough movies, we've read enough books to just kind of naturally, instinctively anticipate that. Like, yeah, he's had his ups and downs. Everybody does. But let's have David go out on top. Uh, Maybe with a a story about his triumphant victory over the Philistines. Or how about another great act of covenant faithfulness like with Mephibosheth? Or how about another majestic and glorious psalm to finish the book? Well, that'd be nice. But this isn't Hollywood. This isn't fairy tale land like happily ever after the end. No, the book finishes with a plague brought on by King David's sin that kills 70,000 Israelites. It wraps up with David pleading for forgiveness and mercy from God for yet another great transgression. Like some of his last recorded words in the book are, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. And the book literally ends, like its last verse, is David making sacrifices to atone for his sin. So, with any happily ever after bubbles burst for now, let's read the chapter in its entirety. Second Samuel chapter 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, And may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. 
So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came, from, came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were... 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arona looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arona went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arona said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes and the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. 
brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So I was preparing this week and studying this week, and I don't know, I was just hit with this wave of sadness. We started the book of 1 Samuel back in July of 2020, and we took a long break in the middle to, to do the first nine chapters of Luke. Uh, I just feel, though, that over the last three and a half years, I don't know, David's become like a good friend to us. And so the thought of finishing the books of Samuel, I don't know, I just started feeling all sentimental and stuff. It's, it's hard to say goodbye. So, both because of my unwillingness to say goodbye just yet, and also because there's just a lot of stuff going on in this chapter, uh, we are actually going to split this chapter up into two. We're going to do the first 17 verses this morning, and we will finish the book of 2 Samuel in, get this, 2024. So 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 17. That will be our focus this morning. We'll start by looking at David's counting. That's in verses 1 through 9. Then we'll look at David's conscience. That's in verse 10. And last, we'll look at David's consolation. And that is in verses 11 through 17. So first point number one, David's counting. Let's start in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The again there probably refers, and you'll remember the structure of this six-part epilogue at the end of the book, it probably refers to the first story of the epilogue. Uh, The story from chapter 21 in which the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. But that time because of Saul's sin in murdering the Gibeonites. Because of that anger, you'll remember, Israel suffered three years of famine as judgment, a judgment that was only lifted after seven of the sons of Saul were hanged. Here, God's anger is once again kindled against Israel. But here, we're not told why. Maybe it's because of their rebellion against David. You remember the rebellions of Absalom and Sheba? Or maybe it's some other kind of sin, pride or idolatry or grumbling. Those are just guesses from Israel's long history of sinning. Ultimately, we don't know. But whatever the sin of the people was, verse 1 says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and thus he incited David against them, saying, go and number the people. Now, that verse has caused some confusion, especially because of what the parallel verse in 1 Chronicles says. 1 Chronicles 21.1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So which is it? Is 2 Samuel right, that God incited David? Or is 1 Chronicles right, that Satan incited David? And the answer to that question is yes. Both statements are true. You can think of 1 Chronicles as giving us the details, the specifics. Satan, as the tempter, somehow incites David to number Israel. And so he successfully tempts David here to do something sinful. But 2 Samuel gives us the big picture. It reminds us once again that God is sovereign over all. Even the actions of Satan and his evil forces... 
Like Luther once said, the devil is God's devil. And so putting the two together, God is sovereign over all things. And even though he's not the origin of sin or evil, God does permit sin and evil to happen, sometimes through the actions of Satan himself. And so here, God allows Satan to tempt David, and in accordance with God's good sovereign plans that are going to unfold throughout the rest of the chapter, David commits this sin. And so it's fair to say, as the Bible does, that God incited David and Satan incited David. But we should also say that just because God permits this sin to happen and Satan tempts the sin, it doesn't mean that the one committing the sin, in this case King David, that he's somehow absolved of any responsibility. Uh, James chapter 1 is helpful here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Like At the end of the day, neither God nor Satan is forcing David to do something against his will and desire here. You know, this census is David being lured and enticed by his own desire. And so David is responsible for this sin. That's something that David himself recognizes. Look ahead to verse 10. I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Or verse 17. Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. And it's something that God recognizes as well. Holding David responsible for this sin. But, like, even as we acknowledge that there remain mysteries in the exact outworkings of God's sovereignty and demonic influences and man's responsibility when it comes to sin, there still remains a more basic question here. Like, why is this sin to begin with? What is so sinful about David conducting this census? There's no doubt that it is sinful. Uh, We just saw David acknowledges that it's sinful. Joab tries to talk him out of it because it's sinful. God brings severe judgment because it's sinful. But what exactly is the sin in numbering Israel and Judah? It can't be that a census is inherently evil. After all, uh, isn't there a book of the Bible that we call Numbers because, well, It starts with a four-chapter-long numbering of the people. It starts with a census. And that book contains not one census that Moses conducts of the people, but it contains two censuses, or sensi. Fungus, fungi, census. Why not sensi? It's got two censuses in that book. And so clearly... It's not the case that a census is inherently evil. So if it's not the census itself, like like what's going on here? And here's the thing. It's got to be something so bad that even Joab opposes it. We've been in the books of Samuel long enough to know that Joab is not exactly Mr. Sensitive Conscience. But even Joab opposes the census. 
And First Chronicles adds the detail that the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. Like, for something to be abhorrent to Joab, like, it's got to be really bad. So what is so bad about this census? Ultimately, the text doesn't say. But let me float a few ideas, a few possibilities that people have thrown out there. One possibility is that David was supposed to pay a half shekel of atonement money for each person counted in the census. Because that's what Moses was commanded to do in Exodus chapter 30. This is God's people. This is God's army. And so Moses and David, they have no right to count them unless they first pay the atonement money. That's possible. But if that was the issue, wouldn't you expect the very pragmatic Joab to say, okay, David, I'll count them, but just make sure you pay that atonement money. But instead he says, why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? As if the thing itself, right, delighting in the thing itself, that's the issue. Another possibility that's been thrown out there is that David is assessing his military strength so that he might declare war, he might launch a war on some neighboring nation, a war that God had not authorized for territory that God had not granted. Again, that's possible. But you have to admit, there's not even a hint in the text that the issue is some kind of unlawful territorial expansion. Another possibility is that the issue here is one of pride and self-sufficiency in David's heart. A pride and self-sufficiency that sees the size of his army. How many men do I have? The size of his army as the source of his security and prosperity and strength. Some trust in the name of the Lord our God, but we're going to trust in chariots and horses. I think this one best explains Joab's reaction. May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the King still see it. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? Like, David, may God continue to expand your people. There is nothing wrong with seeing God bless you in that way, but for you to delight in it as opposed to delighting in the Lord. For you to place your trust in it as opposed to trusting in the Lord. That's what's wrong. Even Joab gets that. I think it also helps us to understand why God's response here is so strong. Because the scriptures often repeat how God opposes the proud. The haughty eyes are, Proverbs 6, an abomination to God. And so, if this theory is correct, and I lean towards this one, the sin is not the census itself, and it's got nothing to do with the procedure of counting the soldiers. It's all about David's heart behind it. And here's perhaps the saddest thing. If the sin here is indeed one of pride and self-sufficiency and ultimately distrusting the Lord, the saddest thing is that it's the exact opposite of the David that we've seen in the last few weeks. Just think about that psalm from chapter 22. 
But David is so quick to give all the glory to God for every single military victory. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. You delivered me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. In 2 Samuel 22, verse 28, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Ironically enough, God is here going to do exactly what David said God does. Right? Bring down the haughty. And just think about last week's text. God's giving great victories through guys like JB and Eleazar and Shammah. Why would David then put his trust in his numbers when JB's wielding a spear against 800 enemies by himself? When Abishai is single-handedly defeating 300 enemies? When Shammah alone is fighting off all the Philistines to save the lentils? Like, who cares how many soldiers you have? If nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few, why, David, do you insist on knowing how many men you have and placing your trust in that? Friends, this is a reminder to us of how sin can so easily cloud our judgment and basically make us forget what we know to be true. Like David knew He expressed it many times, even in that psalm, that God was the one who delivered him. But tempted and enticed, perhaps, by his pride, he instead finds security and looks for deliverance in the size of his army. Like, in spite of what he knows to be true, he gives in to the temptation to trust in his own strength. And in the same way, like we know that holiness brings happiness, that sin brings sadness. We know that our idols never keep their promises of fulfillment and joy. We know that rebellion against God brings his discipline. And yet in the moment, when temptation rises against us, so often we find ourselves functionally forgetting what we know to be true. Such is the power of sin. And thus the necessity, the life or death necessity of continually reminding ourselves of what we already know to be true. Daily reminding ourselves of the promises of God. Daily remembering the joys of obedience and the satisfaction that comes in God alone. Daily preaching the gospel to ourselves. That our lives are not about us and what we do, but about Christ and what he's done for us. But in spite of what David knew, and in spite of Joab's protests, Sinner's going to sin. And so the king's word prevailed. And Joab and the commanders, they go out and they count the soldiers. They start with the tribe of Reuben on the other side of the Jordan. And they go north from there. They go in this big counterclockwise, rather, sweep of the promised land. And it takes them almost 10 months 
But they come back to David at Jerusalem. Verse 9. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. Now that's a huge army. Point number one, David's counting. Which brings us to point number two, David's conscience. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. You've got to love the language there, how David's heart struck him. The NIV has David was conscience-stricken. Uh, the CSB has David's conscience troubled him. David's conscience, uh, his inner sense of right and wrong that convicts him of sin and God's righteousness, uh, David's conscience is smitten because of his sin. And so you'll notice that unlike when he sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah earlier, when he was confronted on his sin by the prophet Nathan first, and then he was convicted of his sin, and that then led to genuine repentance? Well, here, the prophet comes later. And verse 10 tells us that David's heart struck him, his conscience troubled him, and then verse 11 tells us that after David arose the next morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, who then came to David. And so, in a way, David's conscience does the job of the prophet. There is no need here for a story about a rich man and a poor man. There is no need for David to unwittingly pronounce judgment on himself. There's no need for the prophet to then turn the tables on him. You are the man. No, David's conscience has already done all the heavy lifting by the time Gad arrives. His conscience, Romans chapter 2, bears witness and accuses David of the sin that he's committed. And notice that his conscience brings him to say the same exact words that Nathan's confrontation brought him to say back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I have sinned. Again, there's no rationalizing his sin. Making excuses? Well, Moses did the same thing. There's no minimizing his sin. That's no big deal. All I did was count some people. There is just heartfelt, honest humility before the Lord. I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And then going to him for mercy. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The Bible gives the word picture of a seared conscience. And that's a, a conscience that's been hardened and calloused, a heart that is no longer sensitive to sin. We see here that that is not David. The chastening hand of God after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, like all of the discipline of the Lord that he experienced, chapters 12 through 20, his family strife, multiple children that he lost, the exile, the rebellions, like all of it. Well, just like Hebrews 12 says, 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That peaceful fruit of righteousness, well, here it expresses itself in his tender and soft conscience towards sin. Point number two, David's conscience. Brothers and sisters, we ought never to overlook the gift of a soft heart with regards to sin. The kindness of God in giving us a sensitive conscience to his word. Because here's the thing. You and I, unlike King David, we don't have prophets like Nathan to directly confront us on our hidden sin to bring about repentance in our lives. We don't have prophets, but we do have consciences. Consciences that, when rightly informed and shaped by the Word of God, are really wonderful gifts from God in enabling us to live holy lives. Uh, David shows us in this incident that that inner witness of his conscience it can bring about true repentance just like a prophet of the Lord can. And so a soft conscience is a gift from God. And as with any gift from him, we've got to be good stewards of it. And so we've got to read his word. We've got to know his word so that our consciences can be rightly informed. And just as important, We've got to respond to his word in obedience so that our consciences would never become hardened or calloused or seared. Point number two, David's conscience. So point number one, David's counting. He conducts this sinful census. Point number two, David's conscience. His heart is struck because of his sin. That brings us now to point number three, David's consolation. And so, the next morning, when David has confessed his sin, he has pleaded with the Lord, the prophet Gad comes to him. He brings a word from God. Basically, it's, you choose the covenant curse. Uh, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. You can read in Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 about the covenant curses. You'll see there that famine and sword and plague are examples of the curses that God promised to bring upon his disobedient people. But I mean, he thought the multiple choice tests that you took in high school were hard. David is given an impossible choice here. I mean, just think about this. Three years of famine. They just experienced three years of famine as a nation when God brought judgment for Saul's sin. Three months of fleeing before his foes, that's an experience that David knows all too well. He spent many years of his life fleeing from Saul's and Absalom's. Or three days of pestilence. 
I'm sure three days is a lot shorter than three months or three years, but you could argue that pestilence is the most intensely destructive of the judgments. And so there really is no good answer here. They're all terrible outcomes, exactly like they're supposed to be. Can you imagine being the king, having to make a decision like this for your people? David's words, I am in great distress. Like, yeah, no kidding. But rather than sit there and deliberate on possible outcomes and scenarios and potential responses, what does David do? He just leans on what he knows to be true about God. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Falling into the hand of man, that's clearly talking about choice number two, right? Fleeing from your foes. But it also might include choice number one also. Because famines make you dependent on your fellow nations. I just think about Jacob and what he had to do with his sons depending on Egypt during their famine. Bottom line, David doesn't want to put himself in a position where he's dependent on the mercy of man. He's lived long enough and he's experienced enough hardship at the hands of men to know just how ruthless and cruel and unmerciful men can be. Falling into the hand of the Lord. David knows very well the mercy of God. He's lived long enough and experienced enough grace at the hand of God to know that his mercy is great. And so given this impossible choice, David clings to his only consolation in the midst of this impending disaster that his God is a merciful God. That God is who he says he is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Point number three, David's consolation. And so the pestilence comes. Just like that, 70,000 Israelites are dead. You remember that census from the beginning of the chapter? That great powerful army of 1.3 million, just like that, 5% of it is wiped out in an instant. And who knows how many more would have been wiped out? Because it was when the angel of the Lord was about to bring the pestilence on Jerusalem that verse 16, the Lord relented from the calamity. It is enough. Stay your hand. We have no idea how many more deserve to die. But we get the sense that it was a lot more than those who did. And so David was right. His mercy is great. Point number three, David's consolation. So that's our passage for today. David's counting, David's conscience, David's consolation. And we'll pick it up here next year. Let me 
wrap up our passage this morning by giving you three takeaways from this passage. Uh, one takeaway for each of our points. Takeaway number one, helpful rebuke can come from unlikely places. Helpful rebuke can come from unlikely places. Let's go back to point number one, David's counting. David is about to conduct this sinful census. But consider who it is who acts as the voice of reason. Verse three, but Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Wouldn't you know it? It's Joab. Joab, who back in chapter 3 kills Abner by stabbing him in the stomach in what was supposed to be a time of peace. Joab, who back in chapter 18 goes against the king's orders and kills Absalom when he's caught in a tree. Joab, who, chapter 20, kills Amasa by stabbing him in the stomach under the cover of a kiss of greeting. It's that Joab who rightly rebukes David here. It's that Joab who correctly sees that David is delighting in what he should not. It's that Joab who tries to prevent David from doing something ungodly. There probably weren't too many people in David's immediate circle who had less moral credibility than Joab. And sure, Joab could have used a a few strong rebukes for his own actions. But even while all of that is true, well, if only David had listened to Joab's rebuke, uh, there would be 70,000 fewer bodies to bury. And so, takeaway number one, helpful rebuke can come from unlikely places. Brothers and sisters, are there ways in which we might apply this in our own lives? Can we be open to hearing rebuke and correction and thus eager to grow in holiness instead of automatically just dismissing it and getting defensive because of who it comes from? Can we be humble enough to submit ourselves to genuine and biblically accurate rebuke brought to us by someone who might be less spiritually mature than we are? Who themselves might have much room for growth? Now that's not to say that everything that everyone says to you is going to be 100% accurate. But instead of just wholesale dismissing it as, well, what does Joab have to teach me? Well, what does that man have to say to me? Instead of just wholesale dismissing it, sincerely examining yourself, bringing it before the Lord and his word, and seeing if there be any truth to it. Takeaway number one, helpful rebuke can come from the unlikeliest of places. Takeaway number two, repentance is a lifelong exercise. So now we're thinking about point number two on David's confession. Takeaway number two, repentance is a lifelong exercise. 
If I were to just say to a bunch of Bible readers, tell me about David's repentance. I'm assuming that almost all of them would talk about David and Bathsheba, right? David and Uriah, Second uh, Samuel 11, Second Samuel 12, Psalm 51. And that's to be expected because that's probably the most famous example of repentance, not only in David's life, but in the entire Bible. But here, in this much lesser-known story from 2 Samuel 24, uh, we have yet another example, yet another instance of David's repentance. Sure, it's much less famous, much less well-known, but this is genuine repentance nonetheless. And it's a reminder to us that repentance is a lifelong exercise. Now, some of you sitting here today, you're not a Christian. And so the fact is that you have never truly repented of your sins. Sure, you felt bad about things that you've done. Maybe you've experienced regret or, or perhaps remorse. But you've never seen your sins as being against the holy God. You've never turned away from your sin and turned to God. You've never understood your need for his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. In a word, you've never repented. Well, if that's you, I beg you to repent today. Repent of your sins and turn to Christ today. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you and I never could. He died on the cross so that sinners like you and me might be forgiven of our sins. He takes upon himself our sin and he gives us his perfect righteous record. And then he rose again from the grave. And today he stands to be your savior if you would repent of your sins and trust in him. But see, even for those of us who have repented, who have believed the gospel, like who have been saved— this narrative reminds us that repentance isn't something that the believer does just once. Yep, repented back then. 2 Samuel chapter 12, Psalm 51, go look it up yourself. No, repentance is a lifelong exercise because sin is a lifelong problem. And so David sinned in chapter 11, and so he repents in chapter 12. And David sins again in chapter 24, and so he repents again. In chapter 24. And that should be true of every single believer's life. It's exactly what Luther said in the first of the 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Well, the entire life of believers should be repentance because the entire life of believers is marked by sin. And so... Brothers and sisters, how is your repentance? I'm not so much talking here about your salvation when you first repented of your sins. We don't want to minimize that. Uh, the amazing grace of God in granting repentance to spiritually dead sinners. But how's your recent repentance? What has repentance looked like in your life in the last year or month? or week, or day? Uh, has your conscience been sensitive to sin? 
sinful thoughts, sinful attitudes, sinful actions that are not in line with God's word? Have you then confessed those sins to the Lord, seeking his mercy like David in our story? But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Have you been clinging to the promises of God, like 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Takeaway number two, repentance is a lifelong exercise. Finally, takeaway number three, and this goes hand in hand with point number three, David's consolation. God is a God full of mercy. Takeaway number three, God is a God full of mercy. See, this story from 2 Samuel 24, it's a story about a holy God. A holy God who, verse one, is angry at sin. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Holy God who is all-powerful, who can send any number of curses and plagues as judgment for sin. Holy God who wipes out 70,000 Israelites with pestilence just like that. But this story from 2 Samuel 24 is also a story about a merciful God. And it's his mercy that's particularly highlighted in this chapter because it's his mercy that acts as David's only consolation. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But that leaves us with a theological dilemma. How can a holy God, who must punish sin, how can a holy God show mercy? Can a holy God just pass over sin? Can a holy God not bring judgment upon guilty sinners? How can a holy God show mercy and spare a sinful people from judgment? And we see David wrestling with this exact idea in our passage. Look at verse 17. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And so this is something that he was thinking uh, during the pestilence, before God, in his mercy, told the angel to stay his hand. David says this, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. You see what he's saying there? He's wishing that he alone could take the judgment of God instead of the people. Please let your hand be against me. In saying that, David shows a great love for his people, a great love for his nation. But there's a problem, and that's that this is impossible. David cannot die for Israel. Because not only is he a sinner in general, but he's even sinned greatly in this chapter. As a matter of fact, the judgment on the nation is brought about by his sin. And so how can a sinner like him, who has just sinned greatly, die on behalf of other sinners? 
He can't. But of course, that's where, once again, and I will only say this two more times, right, this week and next week, we're once again reminded of the fact that the book of 2 Samuel testifies to Jesus. Because in Jesus was not only born perfect because of the virgin birth, Merry Christmas, but also lived a perfect life, always in accordance with the Father's will. In Jesus, we have one who is perfect. And in Jesus, we have one who is not only fully God, but also fully man, and so he can die for the sins of people. And in Jesus, we have one who actually did what David only wished he could do, die for his people. Please let your hand be against me. Do you see? That's exactly what happened on the cross. As Jesus took upon himself the sins of all his people and bore the wrath of God in their place. Jesus took the judgment of God so that God, in his holiness, does punish sin like he must so that he might be just. But Jesus took the judgment of God so that God, in his mercy, might make sinners like us into his children so that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, David was right. God is a God rich in mercy. His mercy is great. Right, Takeaway number three, God is a God full of mercy. But you see, it's in the gospel of Jesus that we see just how great that mercy really is. It's a mercy so great that it forgives even sinners like you and like me. Father, we praise you, for you are indeed a merciful God. His mercy is great, we say, with David. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us in Christ Jesus. We pray that Lord, each of your people here today would delight, would delight and take and find our only consolation in your great mercy and grace that you have shown us in the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.